two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you, Rebecca, and welcome to Words and Movies. That was Rebecca you just heard there. I'm Claude Cole. And I'm Sean Gallagher. Today, we're going to be talking about in my opinion, and opinion of a lot of other people, two of the greatest movies ever made, the first two Godfather movies. Absolutely. And uh, I think we're going to have to treat these as one piece uh, as far as just discussing this whole thing. But we're going to have a specific focus about this, aren't we? Yes. We're going to be focused on the cinematographer of both movies, Gordon Willis, who, even though he shot not only both of these movies, but which both won Best Picture at the Oscars the year they came out, but also shot Annie Hall, which won Best Picture, and All the President's Men, which won Best Picture. And yet he was never nominated for an Oscar on his own for shooting any of those movies, which considering how important the cinematography was, especially to the first two Godfather movies, is pretty strange. But in giving background on us here, before we get to the movies, I hope to at least give a little insight as to why. Now, ever since the studio era, movies, for the most part, were lit pretty brightly. Even the black and white movies of the 30s were lit very brightly. And in the 50s, when movies moved technicolor, and the studios were trying all kinds of things to get audiences into theaters because they were afraid that audiences were leaving theaters. The color movies at the time, while some of them looked quite beautiful, a lot of times they looked rather garish. But at the same time, there were a group of directors from television and theater in the 50s, like John Frankenheimer, Sidney Lumet, and Arthur Penn, who were reacting almost against the excesses of these movies by making, quote-unquote, realistic movies in black and white. But in the mid to late 60s, when color film became cheaper and a lot of black and white movies weren't being made as much anymore because they weren't proving as popular. A lot of these directors, as well as some cinematographers like Laszlo Kovacs, Haskell Wexler, and Vilmos Zygmunt began to realize that you could tell quote-unquote serious stories or at least stories that were outside the mainstream and yet do it in color. And Gordon Willis was part of that movement, although he wasn't exactly in it itself. He had started out working as a cameraman for the Air Force and then got to shooting documentaries. 
and he was hired for his first feature film that came out in 1970 called The End of the Road. And Willis, throughout his career, once it got started in, in feature film in Hollywood, although he lived on the East Coast, was known as the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> there was an old joke about a Paul Newman movie that he shot called The Drowning Pool, which was a sequel to Harper. And the joke was that Willis shot the only movie Newman was in where he couldn't really tell if Newman's eyes were blue or not. This is before Newman admitted in the 80s that he wore tinted contact lenses. But anyway, Willis was known for very dark photography where you couldn't always see the eyes of the characters that he was shooting, at least not clearly. But he also thought that nickname was sort of a misnomer as he was someone who liked contrasts between dark but also light. For example... When you think of the visual parts of All the President's Men, you think of Robert Redford as Woodward down in the garage, meaning deep throat. But you'd be well to remember also that the newsroom where Woodward and Carl Bernstein worked was brightly lit to show the contrast of the truth being explored in the bright light of the newsroom and the murky underside of it in those in that garage. And the same principle applies to both Godfather movies. Yeah, and, and I think one other thing, you, you started to, to, to talk about this, and then you kind of moved away from it, but, but one of the things I recall was that prior to this period of time, movie studios would actually release two prints for a film, and there was one set that was very, very bright and overlit for the drive-in theaters, and then there was another slightly darker set for the theaters because the drive-in theaters had to have these huge, huge, very, very bright bulbs to send these things hundreds of feet across the field to the screen, and that was one of the reasons that that films were kind of overlit, especially as you got into the 60s. Well, that part I didn't know specifically, although it doesn't surprise me, because um, Arthur Penn talked about in shooting Bonnie and Clyde, the clashes he had with the cinematographer at the time, um, Robert Surtees, who whenever Penn said that he wanted the lighting to be not as bright, would say, well, they're not going to be able to see that at the drive-in. And Penn was like, who cares? <laughs> but when it came down to shooting the Godfather movies, especially the first one, but we'll see it in the second one as well, we saw contrast between dark and light. And never is that more seen or obvious than in the opening sequence of the movie, which takes place at the home of Don Corleone, 
his estate during his daughter's wedding. Right. And let me where... let me let me let me get the synopses down. So the movies are well, it's, we start in the late 1940s in the New York area. And Vito Corleone is the head of a mafia family, although we should note we never hear the word mafia during that film, at least not the first one. Uh, the youngest son, Michael, right. who long ago rejected the family business, shows up at the wedding of his sister, Connie, with his non-Italian girlfriend, Kay, and she learns for the first time about the family business. Now, we go forward a few months later. It's Christmas time, and Vito barely survives being shot by gunmen as retaliation for his turning down a request by a drug dealer for political protection. Michael saves his father from a second assassination attempt, but he gets his nose and cheekbone broken as a result. Michael persuades his oldest brother, Sonny, and family advisors, Tom Hagen and Sal Tessio, that he should be the one to exact revenge on the men responsible. After murdering a corrupt police captain and the drug trafficker, Michael hides out in Sicily while a gang war erupts at home. While he's in Sicily, Michael falls in love with and marries a girl, but she is later killed by Corleone enemies in an attempt on his life. Sonny is also killed, having been betrayed by Connie's husband. Uh, Michael returns home, and he convinces Kay to marry him. His father recovers and makes peace with the rivals, but he also realizes that another powerful Don is the one pulling the strings behind the narcotics endeavor that started the whole war. Once Michael had been groomed as the new Don, he leads the family to a new era of prosperity and then launches a campaign of revenge against those who once tried to wipe out the Corleones, thus consolidating his family power and completing his own moral downfall. Now, Godfather II parallels the young Vito Corleone's rise with his son Michael's spiritual fall. So we start in the early 1900s, and the child Vito, he's nine years old, he flees his Sicilian village for America after the local mafia kills his family. Uh, Vito grows up and becomes Robert De Niro, and he struggles to make a living, uh, legally or illegally, for his wife and his growing family in the Little Italy section of New York City. He kills the local black hand, Fenucci, after he demands his customary cut of Vito's business. Once Fenucci's gone, uh, Vito's stature in the community grows, but it is family, both past and present, who matters most to him. There's a family legacy that is upended by Michael's business expansion in the 1950s. Michael's now over in Lake Tahoe, and he is conspiring to make inroads in Las Vegas and Havana's uh, pleasure industries by any means necessary. When he realizes that allies like Hyman Roth are trying to kill him, Michael starts to get a little bit more paranoid, and he discovers that his ambition has crippled his marriage to Kay, and it's turned his brother Fredo against him. Michael barely escapes a federal indictment, and then he turns his attention to dealing with his enemies, thus completing his own corruption. And that's about as succinct as I could get those two films. Right. Now, the wedding sequence, by the way, was inspired by the wedding sequence in Kurosawa's The Bad Sleep Well. Both films have in common that they use both wedding sequences to set up all the major characters as well as the conflicts between the characters. And what Willis does is shows us the contrast between the two faces of the Corleones. On the outside, during the wedding sequences, he overexposes how bright the outdoors is to make it look like your typical wedding celebration by a rich family. 
not counting, of course, the FBI agents that are watching outside. But inside, he meets with people who are looking to get a favor done for them by him. That, of course, was out of necessity. Marlon Brando, who's playing Don Corleone, was at the time 47 years old. He made up to look like someone in his early 60s. And it's because of that that the lighting was darker in those sequences. But it also works thematically because you can't see Don Corleone's eyes when he's lit from above, which they did, again, because of the makeup. And so you never really know what he's thinking. And it's only through his voice, his gestures, that you're able to get a sense of the power that he has. And you get the feeling of this underground business that's going on here. Don, the Don ultimately granting Bonacera, the undertaker, who's the first person we see in the movie, who's recounting about how his daughter was raped and beaten by two guys who were late tried and convicted, but then whose sentence was suspended by the judge. And he agrees to get the undertaker justice, although only after the Undertaker pledges his fealty to him because first he comes out of money instead of out of friendship. And then later, although this isn't quite as illegal, a baker asks the Don to arrange a marriage between Enzo, a baker who's working for him, and the baker's daughter, even though Enzo is technically an illegal alien. And then finally, the one other piece of major business that's done in the study is the Don telling Johnny Fontaine, the singer who's come from California to the wedding, that he'll get Johnny a part in the picture he wants, even though the studio head has said that Johnny Fontaine won't appear in the picture because, as the Don says, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. And it's it's worth mentioning that that we 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 have this contrast between the inside and the outside. And as you say, it's very very bright. I've so I've seen a couple of people refer to it as almost a Kodachrome kind of look, um, just with with the kind of photography that you got at that time in in the forties and fifties. But but the other thing is that it, the, but the first thing, the very first thing you see is darkness. Okay, we're starting in the Don's study, and 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 not at the wedding. You have no idea that the wedding is going on at first. So you get darkness. You hear um, Bonacera's first line, "I believe in America," and then very very slowly the light starts to come up as Bonacera starts telling the story of what happened to his daughter. And the camera also very slowly zooms out. So Bonacera is all you see for roughly the first minute or so of the film. And the first glimpse you get of Don Corleone is first, you barely see his shoulder. Okay, we're looking over his shoulder. And then at one point, Bonacera chokes up. And we see 
the Don's hand just kind of gesture to one of his guys. And that's the first time you know that there's a third person, at least in the room. And the hand is actually out of focus because he's so close to the camera. He gestures. One of the guys brings Bonacera a drink. Bonacera takes it. He takes a sip. He continues his story for at least another minute or so. And then finally, we get the reverse angle and we see Marlon Brando as Don Corleone. So it's got to be at least two, two and a half minutes into the film before we see anybody's face other than Bonacera's. And even then, we still don't have a good handle on what else might be going on until this scene kind of wraps up and then we go outside and we see there's a wedding going on. And it's from that point that in the future scenes with, um, with the baker and with Johnny Fontaine that you actually start to hear little snippets of wedding going on outside. It's very, very quiet at first. And that's right. also, that's also I, sh I should mention, that zoom out is only one of maybe two zooms in the whole film. There's a second one we'll talk about later. Right. Um, one of the other things that Willis was known for is wanting to keep things simple as far as the photography goes. You know, he was more concerned with compositions than with moving the camera, although he would do it if necessary. He wasn't looking to make things complex. He was looking to take an idea that was complex and turn it into something that was simple. And again, it sounds like the most obvious thing in the world now to have the photography and the lighting emphasize the two sides of the Corleone family here, but it's why it makes the scene work so well. And at the same time, to get back to the wedding scenes, even within the bright lights of the outdoors and the wedding, Michael is always lit a certain way uh, to foreshadow the fact that he's going to turn out to be a much darker character than you might think from, the, from his first scenes. And then also when we get our brief glimpses of Barzini, the other Don who turns out to be pulling the strings against Don Corleone, who's played by the veteran actor Richard Conte, is lit in a certain way as well. And then also before he goes to see the Don, Luca Brazzi is sort of lit somewhat dark as well. Right. They're all outside, but they're not nearly as brightly lit as everything else is going on. And it makes sense with Luca Brazzi because he's more or less in the same area as Michael and Kay, at least within, within direct line of sight. Right. As the movie goes on, when we get especially to the scenes where Michael goes to Sicily, um, all of those scenes are shot in warmer light because even though there are mafia people here, some of whom will be reaching out to try and get Michael, and Michael's also under the protection of a mafia don in Sicily. But they're also 
made to seem more like family, not like the family back in New York City, but a warm, nostalgic view of family where everything is old fashioned and proper. Because, of course, Apollonia, the girl that Michael marries, her father is very upset at first when he finds out that Michael's been looking at her until Michael brings him out and says that he wants to court her in an old-fashioned way with all due respect. Yeah, and, and it's a phrase that, that, that comes up briefly in the film where, where they say Michael was hit by the thunderbolt, and that turns out to be an old Sicilian expression, which means basically instantly in love. And actually, and, actually, now that I think about it, and I would have to go back, I, 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 doesn't one of Michael's bodyguards actually say hit by the thunderbolt again to Apollonia's yes, father? Yeah. Yes, that's true. And when we see... Don, meaning with Salozzo, the uh, drug dealer who you mentioned at the beginning, when Salozzo wants his protection, even though it's taking place during the daytime, the room is lit darkly. When Salozzo kidnaps Tom Hagen who is the man we see handing uh, Bonacera, the undertaker, the drink at the beginning scene, because Tom Hagen is the concili- conciliary of the Corleone family. And Salozzo's trying to sell Tom the idea of not going to war, even though he tried to have Don Corleone killed. That takes place in dark light as well. Right, and, and and I'm not too clear on what time of day uh, Tom is is kidnapped, and, and part of that is also a, a choice on the part of Willis, because there's a lot of his outside scenes. You don't see a lot of sunshine going on, um, and 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 that happens especially in Godfather Two. All these scenes in Little Italy they're taking place on the street. You see shots of the entire street, and it's still not bright sunshine going on. But but we do know that later on the conversation that he that that um, Salozzo and Hagen have does take place at night because later on they leave the building and you can see it's clearly nighttime. But as far as when he's picked up, I couldn't tell you for sure. Right. It's important to remember Willis and Coppola may not have gotten along the best during the filmmaking, but they agreed on making this look old fashioned in the sense that they were using old fashioned camera equipment and they weren't using a lot of uh, modern equipment. They didn't use helicopter shots and except for the shot where um, at the beginning he's zooming back or as it's also known as a pullback to reveal and then the other zoom shot in the movie, they don't use zoom lenses a lot either. And that was very deliberate on Willis and Coppola's part. Right. Although there is one shot which Willis probably had a hard time with. As the, the, the story goes, that, that basically Coppola used the shot knowing that Willis was going to hate it. And it's the scene where Vito's getting shot at. 
and we go overhead looking straight down as the gunmen are chasing him out and firing on him and the cart full of oranges comes spilling across the street. Right. And um, we should mention there, the reason why Willis had a hard time with that is that one of his basic principles in shooting was that he wanted everything to be at eye level. Right. You know, that if a human being couldn't see what was going on in the shot, then he didn't want to do it. Now, that was one place where that principle was violated and it worked. Um, In All the President's Men, there's a zoom shot from above where Woodward and Bernstein are in the Library of Congress looking through index cards to get some information. That's another shot where he sort of violated that principle and that worked too. But those types of things are very rare in a film that Willis shot. Generally, he liked movies where everything was shot at an eye level He liked movies where the visual scheme was thought out in advance. He had very little use for what he called dump truck directing, where you shoot something from this angle and then another angle and a master shot and a third angle. And then you put it all in the editing room and let the editor sort it out. Now, I'm not against that method per se if it works, but Willis hated it and wanted everything to be thought out in advance, visually speaking. Although that said, the scene toward the end of The Godfather where you're intercutting between the the baptism and the killing of the other heads of the five families, that was basically a decision that took place in the editing room. Right, but every sequence that was involved in that was thought out. It's not an example of working out it within one location in one scene. Like, imagine, for example, if the baptism sequence the actual baptism, not the killings that are going on during the baptism, was shot at all different angles and then scrambled together in the editing room. It might not have might have worked, but it wouldn't have worked as well as it does in this film. Right, right, right. And 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 we should we should also come back to you, we, we talked about them clashing before briefly. And, and the thing is, I think Coppola had a little bit more of an almost like a Robert Altman sort of approach to the filmmaking in that he wanted the actors to be a little bit free to move around and to do their thing. And, and, and Willis was, nope, nope, nope. They've got to hit this mark. They've got to stop on this spot. Otherwise, the lighting just isn't going to work. The shot's going to be ruined. They have to stop on this point. And in fact, my understanding is that at one point, Willis actually put a sign on one of the cameras that says Marks, uh, actors think Marks are German money. (laughs) (laughs) I did not hear that story, but I would not be surprised. 
Let's get back to the oranges for a moment. Well, this color in general is important in this film, I think. Yeah, well, that's part of the Godfather lore, that every time an orange appears, that means that something bad is going to happen. Now, again, one of the things Hollywood people will tell you is that what critics and audiences think is an artistic choice is more often than not a practical choice. And the production designer on all three Godfather movies, Dean Tavalaris, has said that Orange just helped bring out a nice contrast for the colors that Willis and Coppola were using and that the oranges in themselves had no special significance beyond that. But it's kind of fun to think otherwise. See, I kind of get that because if you look at the scenes like in the, in the Don study at the beginning of the film during, during the wedding and, or, or any of shots that involve the, the study, you know, what you're getting is like these warm wood tones and the, the mahoganies and that kind of thing. And they do take on a little bit of an orange hue to them as a result of, of, of the lighting contrast. But when you're looking at oranges specifically and the color orange, okay, you got Tessio at the wedding, tosses himself an orange. Sonny's wife, there's oranges on the table when she's basically indicating to the other girls uh, how well endowed he is. Um, hmm. We mentioned the overhead view at the assassination attempt. They're on the table where Mom or Tom is meeting with Jack Waltz, okay, at the dinner. Um, Carlo's suit, when he gets the beat down, is orange. <laughs> Let's see, what else? It's on the ta- they're on the table at the five families meeting. When Vito dies, he's monkeying around with an orange, right? He cuts off the rind and puts it in his face to make the fangs. Um, right. In Godfather 2, Johnny Ola brings a gift from Hyman Roth. It's an orange from Florida. Um, we see Don Finucci buying an orange, okay? And then after he does the $100 transaction with young Vito, he takes an orange. He steals an orange off a cart. And then the next thing we see is Vito being given oranges. And the last one I could think of was um, when they are planning Roth's assassination, Michael is eating an orange. Okay, well, again, you know, all of that sounds logical. On the other hand... Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as I say. Okay, but let me, let me, I'm going to reach into Godfather 3 now, okay? When okay. Michael has the diabetic attack, they give him orange juice, okay? When Michael okay. dies, he drops an orange. When the helicopter comes in and disrupts the commission meeting, we see oranges rolling across the table. Okay, fair enough. A little bit more than now, a cigar. That's a big honking stogie there. <laughs> okay, well... Uh, moving a little towards Godfather Two now. Well, can, can the, we can we stick with just color in general for for a moment? Okay, because I think it's sure. also important. I mentioned like the mahogany and those sepia tones that we see in some of those uh, interiors, but also one of the things that that really pops, especially in that first scene where we first see Don Corleone, is the red rose on his tuxedo. It's the only big splash of color that you get in that shot. So you're drawn almost immediately to it. And then similarly, wow. that, that, that red, it, it comes again. Now, when Vito is first shot, 
okay? That's a bright, bright red we're seeing coming out of his coat, as opposed to some of the other scenes where characters are shot up and die. I mean, even Sonny, he's got like a thousand bullets in him, and he's bleeding everywhere, but the blood is not nearly as bright as it is when you see Vito actively bleeding in the street after he's shot up. So Wow, you have to remember, of course, that when Vito is shot in the street, we're in that sense of we're not sure exactly the time of day. I mean, it is daytime, but the sky is not brightly lit or anything like that, where, of course, when Sonny is shot, uh, as he's waiting at the uh, tall, everything's brightly lit. So the red is not as pronounced there because it's a different contrast. Yeah, I know. I, I understand that. But but I, I think it's just just interesting that that in, in those two scenes where Vito is involved, that that the bright that the, the red is, is much, much brighter. Um, a couple of other things where, again, the, the colors used to contrast would be um, in the scene in Las Vegas where uh, where Michael first meets with Mo Green. Fredo's got a very bright jacket going on. Um, actually, Johnny Ola's leisure suit in the second film. Is, is is brightly colored and he wears oh orange <laughs> it's an orange he has that orange hat going on and similarly in godfather 2 fanucci has the white outfit so it's very easy to pick him out among the crowd and it's a contrast to his nickname which is the black, black hand yes. and um as far as fredo goes in his earlier scenes, he's dressed nondescriptly, which is a way of showing just how nondescript he is at first, even though he is technically Michael's older brother. But when Michael goes to see him in Vegas, that loud jacket he's wearing is a way of showing just how much he's changed and how much he's bought into the Vegas lifestyle. You'll notice that Johnny Fontaine and Mo Green, while they're both ensconced in Vegas, they're not nearly as loud in their outfits as Fredo is. Right, right. All right, before, before you move on to, to Godfather 2, I just want to talk about the composition of a couple of scenes in, in the first film that, that really, really struck me. And the first one would be after Vito is shot, we get a scene that takes place in Vito's study. Um, and there are five men sitting in the study of the Corleone home. Um, what you get is like it's a medium shot of the five of them. And Michael is in the shot. He's got his back to the camera. We've got, and I'm moving kind of counterclockwise here. So Michael's got his back to the camera. Tom is sitting in uh, profile. Then you've got Sonny, almost direct center, pretty much facing the camera. Clemenza is next to the left, and he's about three-quarter visible. And then Tessio is there, but most of his face is obscured. So we just mostly see the back of his head. And the view is from Vito's desk, okay? So it's almost like he's an unseen presence in the room while they are talking to one another. Uh, and, and, and so you've got a couple of items in, in the foreground, but you've got just enough to figure out that it's the desk, okay? And they're having the conversation, and Michael says, you're going to kill all those guys? And Sonny says, hey, Mike, stay out of it, okay? And so what he does is, what Michael does is he turns around, 
you can see him in profile and then he looks at the desk almost like he's looking for encouragement from Vito <laughs> and he spots right. the cigarette. So he gets up, he crosses the screen, he goes out of the shot, he comes back in, he leans in, he gets the cigarettes um, and then he kind of tosses them on the table. But now he's standing up at the point where Sonny has to point to Michael and say, hey, do me a favor. He wants him to call Luca. And, and it's, it's just an interesting scene altogether because you've got this subtle bit of business where Michael becomes more prominent for a couple of reasons. One is because he's much closer to the camera now. He's still not clear to be seen. And now also when all the other men are addressing him, they have to look up. And I thought that was a neat way of, of making him just a little bit more prominent. And then I'm sure the second scene you're going to talk about is the other time that Willis and Coppola use a Zoom. And that's the night after Michael is beat up by the police captain played by Sterling Hayden. And he announces in that scene, again with Sonny, Tom, Tessio, and Clemenza, that he thinks that he should meet with Salozzo and the police captain and kill them both. And the camera zooms in on him while he's speaking. And it's the first time that you hear the coldness inside Michael. You know, because every other time that he talks, he sounds like a normal normal guy that you could get along with. Even when he's telling the story to Kay about how Johnny Fontaine was helped by Don Corleone the first time, you know, he's not telling it in a cold, in a cold tone. But here you can really see the psychopath that's within I, I was going to bring that up, but no, that's not the other scene I was thinking of, actually. It's the the other scene that oh. I like it's composed is the one in the garden near the end of the film. Again, you're outside, but it's very dark. Okay, they're sitting against a wall. It's Michael and Vito. They're not making a lot of eye contact. And Vito has like these old faded clothes. He's got stubble going on, so he doesn't have to look good for people anymore. Um, he's kind of grayed over a little bit. There's bits of white in his hair. Uh, Michael's got his black hair going on. He's got new clothes. And, and you know, the two. this is like the scene where, where Vito's saying, I never wanted this for you. I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string, held by all those big shots. I don't apologize, that's my life, but I thought that... But when it was your time that... that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. Governor Corleone, something. Another person of Oh. This was enough time, Michael. But was enough time. Again, we, we see there's, there's a lot of the light and the shadow going on, especially when Vito changes his seat. He gets up, the camera follows him, and then he sits down again, and now he's kind of in profile. 
but he's also darkened out a little bit when he's when he's saying like about how I didn't want this for you. And again, it was one of those scenes like despite the fact of being outside that this is some dark stuff going on and you're seeing the transition with between you know Vito who is constantly like trying to make plans and Michael who's all hey, I got this. And we should mention as well that scene was not written by Coppola or Mario Puzo, upon whose novel the movie is based. Um, originally, Coppola had done a different scene for the two of them in the garden, but he wasn't happy with it. So he brought in Robert Town, who at that time was mostly known as a script doctor, to rewrite it for him and town also worked on the scene where michael says that he's going to kill Salozzo. yes that's right that's right why don't we take a quick break and we will be right back why don't we take a quick break and we will be right back okay so now Godfather 2, again, as you mentioned before, is two different storylines, although the parts about the young Vito maybe take up about a third of the movie, maybe even a little less, but they are important as a contrast between Vito and Michael. And again, it's shown in the way that they're lit, not just the Sicily scenes, which at least when Vito's mother is going up to the mafia figure there to ask her to spare her son are almost overexposed. But also when we get to the scenes in Little Italy in New York City where Willis used a lot of warm amber lights to capture how things looked in the early 1910s and 1920s, which is when these scenes in general took place. And this would prove to be very influential to many movies that were set during that time period. They sought to capture that same type of amber lighting. I can think of right off the bat, another Robert De Niro gangster movie that was partly set in the twenties. Once upon a time in America was heavily influenced by the look here. And although it's not a gangster movie, um, James Gray's The Immigrant also used a lot of the same lighting techniques. Let me ask you this. Is, is, we know that, that a lot of the lighting for The Godfather, the first one, you know, was a little bit of, of a matter of necessity because of um, – because of Marlon Brando's makeup, okay? You had to light him a certain way because if you lit him straight on, well, the makeup's not going to work. We get that, okay? Do you think that there was any sense of necessity in doing this for some of those 
larger street scenes in Little Italy in Godfather 2. And I'm thinking specifically because while they did shoot in Little Italy, there were a lot of buildings on that street that had a rather contemporary look to them. And so what they had to do was cover up some of the buildings and they used canvases, okay, that looked like old tenement buildings and basically covered up the buildings with them. So is it possible that they did some of this in, in, an, in an effort to fool the eye a little bit? It is possible. They don't mention that specifically in what I've read because I've read Coppola's... Uh, or I've heard Coppola talk about it, and I've heard Willis talk about it, and I've read a couple of the books on The Godfather, but they don't talk specifically about that. They do talk about having to change things to make them look period when they were shooting in New York City. And unlike in making of the first one, where Coppola clashed with, the studio executives all the time on Godfather two, he was given pretty much free reign to do what he wanted, except for a couple of things he had to cut out for budget reasons. And of course the fact that Marlon Brando does not appear at all in Godfather part two, even though at the very end, his character is supposed to appear, but it could very well have been out of necessity, but nonetheless, it lends itself to a warm uh, feeling when you watch these scenes, even though you're watching Vito becoming a criminal. And by contrast, the scenes that are set in the 1950s in Vegas and then in New York City and then also in Cuba, the contrast between light and dark isn't as pronounced as it was in the first movie because there is really no contrast between light and dark in the Corleone family under Michael. Michael does his dirty deeds in secret, but he doesn't give them the, but they don't get, have the same feeling of, oh, he's got this bright life in contrast to that because his marriage to Kay is not the greatest even before she tells him that she's aborted his child and not had a miscarriage, we know that things are not going great between them. The scene where Tom Hagen comes into Senator Geary's room after um, the Corleone family has killed the prostitute in his room and made it look like Senator Geary was to blame. That's lit in a very dark way because that's showing just how low the Corleones are willing to go. But other than that, you don't get the same kind of contrasts 
going on, at least as far as the lining goes. Right. And the other thing is, is that, that Michael, he's already corrupted. And, and this is just he's he's just traveling further and further down that path of damnation. So it it does kind of make sense that you don't have to do the heavy contrast from from one thing to the next because it's already there. We're already in the dark, at, you know, from 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 the from the metaphorical standpoint. And we're just it's just going to get darker and darker as we as we move along here. Right now. One thing I want to mention that's sort of independent from the lighting and the camera work, although I do want to get to one bit of lighting uh, in the past scenes that's almost like an in-joke when uh, the young Vito is going to kill Fenucci at his apartment in the hallway you see him knock out the lights in the hallway to make it darker so that no one will be able to look in and that's almost sort of like the filmmakers showing off willis having done the same thing making everything darker here but the part that i wanted to get to about both one and two is there's been pushback against Godfather 1 and 2 in some quarters and saying as how the movies aren't realistic when it's talking about gangsters, at least compared to Martin Scorsese's gangster movies or other people's gangster movies. And... I would say the same thing that Coppola is saying or has said in interviews that the characters may be gangsters, but the movie is more about emperors. Don Corleone is an emperor who falls and Michael's the son who rises above and becomes even more corrupt. Or you could also put it in the sense of Vito's the CEO of the company and Michael's the business officer who takes over the company and then runs it his own way. Right. And and we also get that contrast a little bit because we 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 understand that that most people are they're loyal to Vito Literally, it's it's out of a sense of loyalty, as opposed to Michael and Mike. I think it's Michael himself who says very specifically that these are businessmen, and so he's viewing it as a very businessy relationship. If I'm not making money for you guys, you're not going to be loyal to me. It's it, and and it's so it's it's a very, it's it's a zero sum game for him. Right, and you know you see the ruthlessness in him go even further in part two, not just when he basically killed, well, not basically, he kills Fredo near the end of the movie for betraying him. And even before that tells him, you're nothing to me now, but also that great scene near the end when he tells Tom, 
I don't have to kill everybody, Tom, just my enemies. And the way he delivers that makes it all the more chilling. Right. And and, and that's the thing it, it, is the, the first with the first film, you know, yes, there's killing. There's lots of killing. But it's also almost kind of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon in the sense that like Bugs is doing his own thing. He's off there being a rabbit and Elmer Fudd comes in and tries to shoot him or some other kind of thing is going on. And the Corleone family is in the same boat. Is like everything they do, all of their hits are a matter of self-defense. They shot at us first. They tried to kill Pop. They tried to kill, well, they killed Sonny. And, and so they are a threat and they have to be taken out because they're colluding against us. As opposed to that second film, yes, I have to wipe out all my enemies just because they're my enemies and I have to wipe them out. And so it becomes almost like a revenge fantasy kind of thing for, for the Corleone family is... is you know, we're not taking them out because they're a threat to us. We're taking them out because their interests don't match up with ours. And it's important to remember that's part of why Coppola decided to make the second film in the first place, even though he didn't want to because at first, because he saw how some audience members and some critics were thinking, oh, the first Godfather movie has romanticized the mafia. And he was very upset by that view. So one of his stated reasons for making the second one was to drive any feeling of romance that you might have for Michael straight into the ground. Yeah, although let me, I, I need to back up on that because there is one scene where we see Vito kill out of revenge as opposed to self-defense. And that would be in Godfather 2 when we see young Vito go back and kill Don Ciccio because Ciccio killed his parents. But that would be it. Right. And I, and, but I also think that that might be a little bit of a catalyst for Vito is like he kind of lost the taste for the revenge at that point. That's a maybe. I'm just speculating, of course, but... There is maybe a sort of revenge in going after Don Fanucci because you see him go after the actress in the opera that his friend Jenko, by the way, who we don't see in Godfather 1 at all, except for a part that we're going to talk about a little later, I hope. Where he's an extra. But in, <laughs> yeah. But in part two, Jenko has a crush on this woman who's in this opera that he takes Vito to see, and Fenucci makes the moves on her. But also, Don Fenucci, when he finds out that Jenko and the young Clemenza, who's played by Bruno Kirby, and Vito have been stealing without his knowledge. Finucci comes in and says, hey, if you guys don't pay me, I'm going to make trouble for you. So in a sense, that could maybe fit into the idea of, well, he's going to strike against me, so I'm going to strike against him. I don't quite view it the same way, though, because the other thing that they've established is that Finucci is, um, you know, as as a member of the Black Hand who, for whatever reason, doesn't having have the backing of Don Maranzella, you know, is, is 
he's a bully. And that's the thing that really irritates Vito, okay, is like he's basically picking on the people who don't really have any interest in... in, in uh, he, he, I, I think Vito views it as kind of like defending the defenseless. Okay, but then there's one other thing which I forgot about. Um, remember, Finucci is the one who's responsible for Vito losing his job at the grocery because he brings in his nephew to work for the guy. And the guy tells Vito, listen, I'm sorry, I like you a lot, but I'm going to have to let you go because Don Fanucci is forcing me to take his nephew on and I don't have room for both of you. Yeah, I'm still viewing that as another facet of the same thing is like, you know, basically he's picking on Abadonzo because he can. And, and that's, that's, that's really what it boils down to is like, you're going to do me this favor just because I'm telling you, you're going to do me this favor. I'm bullying you. Okay. It's not, it's not the relational kind of thing that Vito has with, with Clemenza and with Tessio early on. And then later on where we see it just a little bit more clearly spelled out with, um, with Bonacera and with the Baker and with all the others, it, it's, it's, it's always like, I'm going to do you this favor. You're going to do me that favor. And it's always like everything he does is relational. There's a, there's a friendship angle to it. Um, and, and maybe it's kind of coercive, but at the same time, that's always the way it's framed. And, and, and Finucci doesn't view it that way. He's like, Hey, I'm the boss of this neighborhood. So you're going to do it. And, and that's the thing that rubs Vito the wrong way is, is basically he's picking on his own people. Why are you doing this? And then by contrast, we have Michael, who will basically go after anybody who he thinks has crossed him. Right. Even though he will pretend otherwise when uh, Senator Geary in their first meeting at the beginning tries to tell him that they're all hypocrites, and he has that great line. I don't like your kind of people. I don't like to see you come out to this clean country in your oily hair, dressed up in those silk suits, and try to pass yourselves off as decent Americans. I'll do business with you, but the fact is that I despise your masquerade, the dishonest way you pose yourself, yourself and your whole fucking family. We're both part of the same hypocrisy. But never think it applies to my family. Well, she's going to find out soon enough, Michael, that is, that his family is not quite what he makes it out to be. Now, we should mention a couple of things here. Because Richard Castellano wanted a bigger salary and wanted to be able to write his own dialogue and also wanted his own girlfriend to write his dialogue if he didn't like what Coppola was coming up for him. Then uh, Coppola let him go and replaced the character with uh, Frankie Pentangelini, who's played by the playwright and actor Michael V. Gatso. 
and who makes a memorable impression, even though he's a replacement character. And they sort of explain away the fact that Clemenza died of a heart attack. And then also the new character who's put in is Hyman Roth, who's played by Lee Strasberg who is best known for being one of the creators of the actor's studio, but who also dabbled in acting himself a little later in life. And he was Al Pacino's mentor at the studio, which is part of why Coppola cast him when he originally wanted Ilya Kazan in the part. Well, I didn't know that about Kazan. Um, no, that was that had to be one of um, Strasberg's last roles, wasn't it? Well, he didn't act in movies much. Right, right, right. The only other movie that I remember him in was in the uh, Martin Brest comedy Going in Style with George Burns and Art Carney. And that was a couple of years play, later. Where they play three elderly men who decide to get into bank robbing. I don't know if you know anything about this, but because I've I've tried looking around and nobody seems to have an answer, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. But there is a scene that takes place where Hyman Roth is basically telling the story of Las Vegas and the young man, Mo Green, who raised the city up out of nowhere in the desert. And as Roth starts getting a little bit more upset, he starts giving off this little noise in between segments of his lines. And I said to myself, this is the business we've chosen. I didn't ask who gave the order because it had nothing to do with business. And I can't really understand what the choice was when it came to making that noise. Well, you have to remember that Hyman Roth is sick. You know, even in that scene, you know, he's shown to be clearly very sick. Even at his birthday celebration, you know, he's lying in a chair because it takes him a lot of effort to get up. And even in his first scene t- with... um Michael, when Michael goes to visit him at his home, he talks about how he's very sick. And then I think right before that scene where he gives the speech about Mo Green getting killed, that a doctor had come in to examine him. So that glitchy noise that he makes could be part of what he sounds like when he gets excited and he gets angry because you'll notice that that's the only time in the movie that he gets angry like that. Yeah. Every other time he's on an even keel. So that basically could just be a physical condition that comes out when he gets angry and that might be what Strasberg was going for there. Yeah, it's possible. It's kind of peculiar. I, I, I should mention also that shot of him telling the story of Mo Green 
is probably one of the longest in the film. There aren't a lot of long takes in that film. I'm, I'm, I can think of that. And maybe at near the very end where we get, again, a slow zoom on Fredo in the boat as, as he's praying right before he is killed. And other than that, I think, A, that that's the only zoom in the film, and B, that... I think those are the two longest takes in the film. Right. Although Willis wasn't adverse to using long takes in general, because I think of the scene in All the President's Men that's on a split diopter when Woodward is on the phone with Kenneth Dahlberg while other people in the newsroom are in the background. And then in Annie Hall, when Woody Allen is walking through the park with Tony Roberts, the camera stays fixed in place before they even come to the camera. And that's a long take. And then also the scene where he and Diane Keaton are online in the movie theater that's all done in a very long take. So Willis wasn't adverse to the idea of doing that. But in The Godfather, you're right. There aren't a lot of long takes. There's not a lot of fast cutting either. Right. Except, of course, when they recreate or do a type of scene that was done on the first movie, the baptism scene, in the second movie, again, you see cutting back and forth through the killing of all of Michael's enemies at that point. Right. But that said, the cutting is it's, it's much more leisurely than you usually expect from that kind of thing. It's not like bang, 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 bang. We're cutting like that. I mean, what you what you get is like you got the long shot of, of Fredo boating out and then as a look at Michael in the boathouse. And the music changes, or, or the music comes in, rather, okay? And you hear that little, you know, and you know, okay, Fredo's going to get it, and we're going to cut away to Michael, and that's going to be the end of Fredo. And instead, we go to the airport, okay? And we see Hyman Roth being escorted by, by, the, the, um, by the police and so forth. And then next thing you know, we're in the military base where Frankie is being held. He hasn't been moved to the prison yet. And then we go back to the boathouse. And that's where we see that cool shot with the leaves. And I'm sure you're going to want to talk about that in a moment. And, and then um, we come back to the airport and Roth and Rocco die. And then we go to Pentangeli. He's in the tub. So it's getting quicker, but it's still not very fast editing. And then we go back to the boat and we got the slow zoom as Fredo prays. And the thing that I like, there's two things about that shot I like, is, is one... You're coming in very slowly, and just as Al leaves the frame, you see his hand come up with the gun, and then they cut over to Michael in the boathouse, and they we're holding there for a while. And I was like, let me time this out just a little bit. It turns out Al's giving him enough time to finish the prayer, and then we hear the shot ring out. Right, yes. I remember that as well. Now, the shot at the leaves that you mentioned? yes. That was a beautiful shot that's inspired by a similar shot in Bertolucci's The Conformist, which Coppola has said was a big influence, visually speaking, for 
both of these movies. And he went on to work with the cinematographer of that movie, Vittorio Storaro, in Apocalypse Now. The thing I wanted to mention real quick before we get to Janko again as part of the deleted scenes and the uh, combining of the two Godfather movies into one television movie is that Coppola gives us echoes of the first film throughout Godfather 2 and not just in that last sequence of Michael killing off all of his enemies. In Anthony's communion sequence, that is the first thing we see in the 1950s story, after we see the young Vito story, the communion sequence is basically meant to echo Connie's wedding, but as a way of contrasting how much different the Corleone family is now. You know, everything looks more plastic thanks to the lighting that Willis uses. The music is quite different. For example, that great sequence where Frankie Pentangeli tries to get the orchestra. To- I can't believe out of 30 professional musicians, there isn't one Italian in the group here. Come on, let's have a talent there. And the meanings that Michael has in the study of his house don't really resolve anything because there's nothing to resolve. All of that is done in a way to echo the first movie, but to show how things have changed. Yeah, and the other thing that we get, though, is, is, and this is kind of interesting, is is in the first film, we get the scenes in the study, and you've got light coming in from the outside, but it's like through blinds. And so you can, like I said, you can at some point, so you can hear the wedding going on outside, but you can't really see it. But in Godfather 2, you see a lot of background through the windows. There's There's a lot of stuff going on that you can see through the window. So, so it, it, it's kind of interesting. There are a lot of window shots in this film or, or even structures. There's like, there's a shot at the communion party and it's, it's one of the few, again, not at eye level shots, maybe from the point of view of one of the bodyguards on the roof, because you're looking through that frame that has the star in it, which has to be mounted on top of the house. But other than that, that's it. But a lot of windows in that house, and 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 a lot of times when you can see what's going on outside, and that of course becomes important when Michael comes into the bedroom and realizes that the drapes are open too. Right, and then of course when we have that shot near the end of Michael looking out at the lake when Fredo gets killed, 
it's of Michael looking through the window at it. It's from the outside, not showing Michael inside, but looking through the window as to show just how cut off he is from Fredo. Right. Oh, and one other place where a window comes in kind of important is the scene where um, Michael finally confronts Fredo and Fredo says, I didn't know it was going to be a hit. And we start with that long shot of the room where you can see it's all snowy outside and that kind of thing. And Michael and Fredo are mostly in shadow. And it's not until you get in closer on them that you can see they're a little bit better lit. But most of the lighting from that scene is supposed to be coming from outside. Yes. Now, Willis was a great believer in using light from what is commonly known in Hollywood as the magic hour, which is when the sun is just right in the sky to light a certain scene. And while that scene that we're talking about with Michael and Fredo, which is when Fredo finally explodes at the treatment he's been getting from Michael and everyone all of his life. He said there was something in it for me on my own. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taking care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this. Send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. While that scene doesn't look like it was shot during magic hour, the same principle applies using natural light whenever possible. Right. And we can contrast that with with the scenes in the study and, and, and how they were using pools of light that the actors had to move in and out of. And it, it's kind of interesting because I, I'm kind of contrasting that with the actors had to move in and out of these pools of light in order to be seen and and they would have to stop in that spot so that they could be seen for what was going on and it was really meant for a place for those actors to stand still and the contrast I'm drawing is against the TV show The West Wing where they put pools of light in the hallways to as the actors move through it it gave them a greater sense of motion right now speaking of TV the first two Godfather movies were edited together into what was called the Godfather Saga. Yes. Which was broadcast on TV. And in this, while Coppola cut a few things so it could be shown on broadcast television because of standards and practices, of course. He also added a lot of scenes that he had been forced to cut out of the first movie and that he cut out of the second movie. Now, some of what's cut out of both movies was simply for time. And then also 
there's an ending that was used to the Godfather saga that was originally the ending of Puzo's novel, but they didn't use it in the movie. In the novel, it ends with Kay going to church and, as the final line says, praying for the soul of Michael Corleone. And in the saga, we see a shot of Kay right in the middle of the camera wearing a veil and praying at church while the credits start to roll. But in, instead, at the end of the first one is the shot of the door closing in on Kay, which I think works much better for the movie. It absolutely does. And it, but, happens, and it happens to her in every movie. We get that shot of, of the door closing on Kay. Right. The, because the last time that, we see in her in Godfather movie, 2 is when Michael closes the door in her face. And it's not right, the last time we see her in the third film. Right. And it's, and it's the not the last time we see her in the third film. But there is a point when Michael is basically going back into, he, he's, he's kind of reformed himself a little bit. But then the word gets out that Don Tomazino has been killed and he starts making plans and she's like, it never ends. And the door closes on her yet again. Right. Now, getting back to the saga. Yes. The parts that were put in there that I do kind of wish had been put into the first movie were we get a more nuanced portrayal of Sonny. You know, James Kahn was very unhappy about the theatrical cut of The Godfather because he claimed that some of his best scenes were cut out of the movie. And you really get that in the scenes that were put in the saga, specifically the scenes of him reacting to when he finds out the news that his father's been shot and may be killed. You know, there's a scene where he goes to his mother, who's played by the jazz singer Morgana King, and we see how she takes the news, not getting upset, but saying that I better go get things ready. And then we see him making phone calls to people and pointedly not sitting in his father's chair. And Willis and Coppola make us notice that. And then when Michael finally comes home to that and he brings Tom Hagen's wife, Teresa, in to find out what's going on with Tom, you see Sonny playing the family head there, assuring Teresa, hey, everything's all right with Tom. He's coming home. Nothing's happened to him. Why don't you go on outside? So he's playing the head of the family there. And then we also see a little bit of him conferring with Tessio and when Michael won't leave, Michael, about how they figured out that Polly was the traitor in the family. Okay, I, I, I thought the other one that you were going to bring up is... Um... 
well, first there's the scene where Jenko is dying, and he has the conversation right. with Vito. And, and and the but the other one that I thought you were going to mention is where um, Fabrizio gets his comeuppance, which didn't happen in either film. That happens in the second movie. We do see that, and we also see a couple more details about just how bad Walt says. It's implied that he's basically sleeping with his starlet, which makes Vito react even more with distaste when he finds out about it. And then for the second movie, the second movie, as we've discussed before, is one long slide for Michael from evil to more evil until he's basically cut himself off from everybody. The one scene where you see maybe a glimmer of humanity in him is when Sonny's widow comes with her daughter and her daughter's fiance so that the fiance can ask for Michael's blessing for their wedding to go forward. And even though Michael gives his blessing and is warmer in the scene than we see him in any other scene in the movie, we still see the calculation behind him. You know, when he tells the fiance, whose name is Garner, that even though he is in fine arts and his family owns a big business that he's a stockholder in, that he should think about taking a course in business administration. And then when they all leave, he tells Tom to make sure that the dowry is big. You know, you see that side of calculation in him, even though, you know, that's the closest he ever comes to acting like Vito. Yeah, but I was I was still kind of comfortable with that scene being missing because we don't see any great warmth out of Michael in the way it finally turned out. And, and, and so... I think that winds up being like a little bit of a speed bump for the audience to, to have him have this warm moment and then suddenly not for the rest of the film. So I'm OK with that. And one thing we should mention that we didn't is that the other thing about the Godfather saga is that it was edited to be in sequential order from a timeline standpoint. So it starts in 1901 and goes up until the end of Godfather 2. Right. And while you can get a sense of where Michael's coming from through that by not having the veto scenes to contrast with, it does make that last part weaker for me, which it, is why I was never really didn't able make it to, to get the into end. the Godfather <laughs> saga. Yeah, I get that. It, 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 it kind of drags a little bit, just a little bit. And speaking of dragging a little bit, um, before we end, we should mention part three, which had been a long time coming, and Coppola only did it because he had debts to pay and he figured out how to tell the story, and is 
flawed by a couple of casting decisions, but overall is still a worthy movie. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, it's it's... It's got a couple of weird casting decisions, as you mentioned. And in one case, he was kind of up a tree and had to do something in a hurry, you know. But there's also a weird lack of attention to some of the details. And and I'm thinking specifically of the there's a scene in Godfather where they're doing they're doing the montage of of the, the, the wars. And at one point you see a newspaper hit the table and there's a story in it about Vito Corleone coming from the hospital. Okay. And if you look closely, you can see that the story is about Vito Corleone who had been shot and now he's on his way home as opposed to Godfather three, where there is a shot of a newspaper and something about Michael and his move against international immobiliary. But if you look at the text of the story, it's actually like word processing instructions. <laughs> Well, then there's also the matter of the dates as well. The storyline involving Immobiliari and the Pope was meant to echo the story of the death of Pope John Paul I. But the dates were wrong in that. Although I think that's a product of well, all of that is a product of the fact that Coppola was so rushed in making this film. He wanted the movie to come out in 1991, but Paramount said, no, this has to come out in Christmas of 1990. So he didn't have much time to get everything done the way he wanted. And I think errors like that are a f- reflection of that. Although errors like that, I can forgive. It's more the fact that there's no Tom Hagen in this movie. Yeah. Because the studio didn't want to pay Robert Duvall what he thought he should have been paid. And while George Hamilton does his best in playing this lawyer for the family... He simply does not have the screen presence that Robert Duvall did, nor does he have the history that Tom Hagen did, which is not really his fault. But also, you don't get the sense that his character is willing to get down and dirty like Tom Hagen did. Because remember... In Godfather 2, when I mentioned that Senator Geary having a dead prostitute in his room, it's Tom who goes in to talk to him about that. He also takes care of the scenes with Kay in the first one when she's trying to send a letter to him. Tom says, well, if I accept this letter in a court of law... I could be made to admit that I know where Michael might be. And in the second movie, when Kay's trying to leave the compound to go shopping, it's Tom that stops her. And George Hamilton's character 
is not going to get into the muck like Tom did. And that leaves a big hole. Well, I, I agree. He's just generally a weaker character, but it's, I think it's also reasonable for him not to be the guy who gets into the mud, if only because part of the storyline for this film is meant to be Michael's attempt at redemption and becoming a more legitimate businessman and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, but but we don't get anything in the way of, of backstory for Tom. So we uh, for not for Tom, for for BJ. And and so we don't really have a good handle on. Well, who is this guy? Why is he here? We don't we don't understand that. And and that becomes a little bit of a thing that you bump on when you when you're first watching the film. Right. But at the same time, there is power in the movie. Um it comes from Pacino's performance again. I think the best performance I've ever seen in a movie is Pacino's work in Godfather 2, even though the character is basically static and he's very good here. It comes from the elements that Coppola brings in with Sonny's illegitimate son, Vincent, played memorably by Andy Garcia. Oh, he was great. Yeah, it comes with Connie and Kay having more to chew on here. And it also comes with Joe Mantegna playing the John Gotti type Joey Zaza, who Vincent is butting heads with in the movie. And it also comes with the way that Coppola and Willis shoot the movie. Again, with the scene in Michael's study with Joey Zaza and Vincent and Connie, the way the lighting is done there is very sharp and distinctive. And the scenes in Italy where because there's corruption going on there, the contrasts aren't as much as they were in the Italy scenes in the first two movies. Only when Michael is taking Kay out sightseeing do we see more of the brightness that was in the Italy scenes in the first two movies. Right, and I think the other thing I would add in as far as a... As a um as a contrast scene would be the one in the chapel where Connie is the one who gives the order to take out Joey Zaza. And again, they're almost and in, almost not quite in silhouette in that scene. Now to wrap this up, you mentioned the fact that last time that the first two Godfather movies are not available to stream anywhere, mm-hmm. which is true, except for that expensive service. But they are available to rent or buy at Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, and Apple TV, and other services. So even if you don't have the DVDs, which I do, <laughs> or the VHS, which Claude still does last time that he does. <laughs> I got the DVDs you too. Still, <laughs> you can still watch them online. Yes, you can. And what about what about next time around? What are we doing next time? Okay. Uh, next time we're going to talk about two movies that I call one song musicals. By which I mean, and we'll get into more details, they have one song that dominate the movie. The Mambo Kings 
and that thing you do. And you can find me on Facebook, Sean Gallagher. And if you want to contact us with a question or a comment, you can email us at wordsandmoviespod at email.com. And Claude, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on the Twitter at Claude Call, and you can also find my other podcast, How Good It Is, at HowGoodItIs.com. And I should mention that we have a Twitter feed now at Words and Movies Pod. All right. So we'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.